Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, April 12th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a group of civil rights advocates say Southern states set the tone for policies that have broader national ramifications, often affecting minority groups more. Then, how some communities are working to keep dollar stores out. Plus, History is Lunch looks at the life, work, and legacy of Margaret Walker. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Civil rights advocates say the South is ground zero for a number of anti-democratic policies that are infiltrating the national political landscape. Democracy under attack, as goes the South, so goes the nation, was the theme of a recent virtual panel discussion that featured a coalition of civic engagement organizations from southern states. Experts and advocates took a deep dive into attacks on voting rights, LGBTQ plus communities, Medicaid expansion, reproductive health care, and other legislation limiting or restricting democratic values. Ashley Shelton is founder of the Power Coalition, a nonprofit based in Louisiana, promoting civic engagement. She says in many southern states, legislative supermajorities present a challenge to the democratic process. We have just recently kind of arrived at what I'm calling a soft supermajority in Louisiana, because I do believe we have a few folks that are willing to do what's right for the people of the state versus what is right via their political party. Um, you know, but it you know, but it is a, a very tense moment where we see, you know, folks trying to use their their power and their control at the state level to have control at the local level. And whether that's the treasurer holding back bonds to cities like New Orleans because of the progressive stance that they take on critical issues like reproductive justice, um, you know, or using crime as an excuse to, you know, to invade and create questions at the local level and other municipalities who just so happen to mostly be led by African-American leaders. And so I think, you know, for, you know, for us here in Louisiana, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. One, to hold on to the wins that we've had around criminal justice reform and, um, you know, and, and, you know, kind of clawing our way out of the most incarcerated place in the country or in the world at this at this moment, unfortunately. And so we've got a lot to do. Republicans have held a supermajority in Mississippi's legislature for the better part of a decade. Nasambi Lambright Haynes with the Mississippi-based nonprofit One Voice says this session, they use that power to 
inject state control into the majority black capital city. And while all of that's going on, our legislature um, chooses this time to um, introduce a bill to um, um, make a statewide police force in Jackson um, to solve crime problems in Jackson. This police force um, was a police force that had been around for a while just to patrol the downtown area. And um, now this bill gives them authority to patrol all of Jackson and also establishes a court system outside of the existing court system that that Jacksonians um, have already um, elected. So um, the same thing, same attack on progressive cities by the supermajority legislature to make sure that these progressive cities um, stay in their place. The panelists also said the South is a testing ground for challenges to Supreme Court precedent. Ashley Shelton says this is evident in cases like Dobbs versus Jackson, Women's Health Organization. You have to think about the fact that I am a Black woman in the South in 2023, and every right that I have, the right to vote, the right for my children to attend integrated schools, every right that I have has been given to me by the federal courts or federal government, right? Like there's not one right that I get to enjoy just because I live and breathe in this country. And, you know, and I think that it's that same reality that we're fighting against today. And so here we are, look at all of the things that have um, originated at the Supreme Court. You look at Dobbs, it came out, came out of Mississippi. You look at Shelby, you know, both Tennessee, you know, and uh, Alabama. Like there are all of these cases that to your point, as the title of this panel, like as goes the South goes the rest of the country, um, really is true. And we know that so much of the bad policies in this country are seated here in the Deep South, and then they're wholesale to the rest of the country in about a year, right? And so whether it's right to work or many other policies, we see that. Southern states also have some of the tightest voting restrictions. Secretary of State Michael Watson says Mississippi's elections must remain secure. But Lambright Haynes says the state has some of the most restrictive policies in the nation. We're still um, one of a handful of states that still um, disenfranchises individuals with felony convictions. And so that's um, one of our biggest campaigns right now. Um, We also had our ballot initiative process taken away about three years ago. And so we've been trying to get that reinstated. As soon as we um, legalized medical marijuana, we had our ballot initiative process um, snatched um, from us. Um, Mississippi is also uh, remains at the bottom of the barrel for all of you know those voting privileges. We don't have online voter registration. We don't have early voting, um, and you know our um, our absentee voting process is crazy as well, and no early voting. Um, and also, we also have um, a legal challenge um, on our redistricting process. Basically, our legislature tried to lump all of the Black people, majority Black areas in Mississippi, into Congressman Benny Thompson's 2nd Congressional District instead of giving us two um, electable communities of interest in Mississippi. Um, And so that case right now, I believe the NAACP is appealing that decision. It was sent back um, to the state this year, and I believe it is on um, appeal right now. 
Also not lost on the panelists were the events in Tennessee last week when two black lawmakers were expelled over House rules violations. Mattia Powell is executive director of Civic Tennessee. She says this is also a symptom of supermajority power at the state level. One of the probably biggest contributing factors has been our gerrymandered maps uh, that we've seen, not just this past um, redistricting cycle, but the previous as well. Um, and so we have we have a lot of democracy issues. And what you've seen is this unchecked political power that happens at our state uh, that makes it almost impossible for us to really fight for the values that we believe in in Tennessee. Uh, and so it has really it has really been a struggle to to see how we can make change with the way that our democracy is set up here. But I will say that I think um, just this past week with the outpouring of, um, you know, folks really protesting and showing up and showing what Tennessee really is and what we want out of our democracy, I felt really hopeful uh, for, 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 for more hopeful than I have in a while, at least. While Black lawmakers in Mississippi claim many bills this year unfairly targeted people of color, members of the white majority claim those arguments were race baiting rather than offering solutions to problems. Coming up, how some communities are working to keep dollar stores out. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing the leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The dollar store expansion seems unstoppable to some. After all, Dollar General alone opens more than 1,000 stores a year across the U.S. But some communities have fought against dollar stores trying to open in their towns and won. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on the anti-dollar store playbook. If you want to know why someone would give up the glamour of New York City for a tiny, unincorporated town like Cullioca, Tennessee... Chris Grambling says, just look around. We're sitting on bales of hay. My neighbor's two dogs are up here sleeping. I see my goats in the distance. When the sun goes down, the stars here are going to be absolutely outrageous. Grambling bought this farm in 2019. But two years later, when he heard a Dollar General might open in town, he considered moving again, leaving behind the dogs, the land, all of it, because of a dollar store. Yeah, I guess I really don't like them a lot when you lay the facts out there for me, Stephen. I, I just am opposed to it. It's unbridled growth for growth's sake. Look, lots of people love dollar stores. They're convenient, cheap, but there's also a growing backlash to the chains. At least 75 communities have rejected dollar stores in recent years, according to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. The group advocates for small businesses and against the growth of corporations. It recently released a guide to help communities looking to stop dollar stores from opening. So these are your four easy steps for fighting off a dollar store. I wish I could say they were easy. Uh, We tried to make them understandable. Kennedy Smith is the researcher who wrote the four not-so-easy-step guide. And step one is to slow the process down. 
with something like a pause on dollar store development. To just sort of say, wait a minute, have we really thought about this? The extra time is also needed for step number two, figuring out a legal way to stop the dollar stores. Smith does warn this part of the guide is important, if a bit dry. It's good reading for uh, those insomniac nights when you're trying to fall asleep. In Kolioka, opening the dollar store would have required rezoning. So stopping the store just meant getting the county commission to vote no, which led into step number three persuading the decision makers. By that time, an old school phone tree and a modern Facebook group had spread the word and grown the opposition. One by one, residents spoke at the meeting, giving different reasons for being against the store. From resident Laura Mitchell pointing out there are already plenty of dollar stores just outside of town. To me, progress is not putting the same store that you have three and a half miles up the road straight down and plopping another one in. To Liz Reeves' fears, it would force the town's one market and restaurant out of business. We need that store. It's been in, with us forever. We do not want to see that one fail. Grambling also spoke at the meeting, saying the land should be used by someone that respects Kalioka. That's what I think is super important. We don't allow a vampire like Dollar General or any of the others to come in and do that to us. Now, some researchers say there isn't solid evidence backing up the idea that dollar stores wreck local economies and ruin diets. Still, the dollar store backlash worked on commissioners like Debbie Turner. I've never seen this much outrage in the community. They simply do not support it. They have valid reasons, and I can no longer support it either. The county commission voted against rezoning, which meant no dollar general would be coming to Kalioka. But remember Smith's four-step guide? Well, step number four is a warning. Be prepared. Because win or lose, the dollar stores will be back. And they do. They, they, come, they come again and again and again to try. I've seen communities that have fought them off three or four times, and they still keep coming back. So she's advising communities to cement their opposition in law. About 50 cities and counties across the country have passed laws that say no new dollar stores within a certain distance of one that already exists. In a statement, Dollar General said these kind of bans hurt customers with stretched budgets that could be helped by one of their stores. For his part, Grambling's been thinking about what would happen if the stores tried again in Kalioka. Maybe they'll win. I don't know. Maybe they'll win and, and I'll have to, uh, I'll, I'll make my next my next move, my next chess move. Uh, and, and that chess move might be a literal move out of, out of it here. Might, yeah, it, might, it might be. Here, have it. I love Kalioka, but you guys want to wreck it? Have, have, have at it. But he believes the town will be better prepared to fight against the dollar stores again when they come back. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Coming up, History is Lunch looks at the life, work, and legacy of Margaret Walker. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's a biography, 20 years in the making. 
Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker, is the first complete biography of the award-winning poet, writer, and founder of what is today the Margaret Walker Center at Jackson State University. Author Mary Emma Graham is presenting some of the meticulous research today at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. Graham founded the History of Black Writing at the University of Mississippi, the beginning of her career overlapping the twilight of Walker's. Graham talks with our Michael Guidry about what went into examining the chief architect of the Black South Renaissance. I think that seeing someone in her own habitat, so to speak, and watching her operate, even at that point in her career, was just amazing. I saw a woman close up who, in the words of Nikki Giovanni, really was known by a lot of people, but unknown by most people. In fact, I would say she was our first public, at least a sort of modern public intellectual, but she was a black woman living in the South. And so I think she got buried underneath that moniker, being from the South, being black, being a woman. Um, So she was in her time, but also not of her time, but literally not part of conversations when we are talking about who are the key figures, who are the major leaders, who gave rise to this or that. So I was just, I wanted to recenter her in these conversations so that people know the contributions that she made. Now, she was a complicated woman. So biography goes in and out of, you know, what it is the person is and what the person does and the life that the person lived on and off the page. So I try to weave all that together in the story. How did someone like Margaret Walker uh, take the momentum of the Harlem Renaissance uh, and then and, and center it around the Black South and even as she went in more into her academic career, Black Chicago, which in, in, in many ways had connections to the South due to the, you know, the Great Migration? Um, how, how was she able to take that momentum and shift it and change the conversation and change uh, the, the, the central themes and attitudes? So great question, because you're right. If you think about Walker, she really covers all of that. The tail end of the Harlem Renaissance, a central figure in the Chicago Renaissance, the Chicago Black Renaissance, um, moves, has her education, starts her career, you know, with this powerful uh, work for my people, the lead poem, of course. Uh, But she also resettled back in the South. So education in part was in the North. A lot of it was right here in the South, in New Orleans. She had a strong foundation at historically black institutions, but she was a central figure during the 50s and 60s because she was in Mississippi. She was quite well-known, often featured in the media, often a spokesperson for what was happening in the South, but she also brought people South. She would be the person that would invite people to come, experience life as it is, as it was transforming, through her many, many, many public programs. So she made Jackson State a center of intellectual work, of uh, public knowledge, of cultural uh, energy, by having so many conferences, the most important of which was in 1973, because it was all black women. It was centered around the black women's renaissance. I call her the, the midwife of that movement. If there was a black women's renaissance, a black women's literary movement, then I call Margaret Walker the midwife for it. 
part of the the objective of of writing this biography uh, and and um, providing this perspective of Walker is to reject uh, uh, this view that she was a an angry black woman and instead a, a pioneer in laying the foundational work of what we know now as black studies or women's studies or uh, public humanities. Uh, why is it important for you to show Walker in that light? Um, and credit her with the, the intellectual foundation of of these things that really are core principles of academia today. Well, because that was her work. That's what she did. That's the legacy she left us. Uh, we wouldn't have that Margaret Walker Center today and all the work that it has done. Uh, this week they're having their case festival, for instance, uh, at Jackson State. She founded that in 1969. So the idea of black studies is is as a new era, a uh, transformation of the academy, uh, you know, inclusion in higher education. It was mainly uh, something that people associate with the North. But Walker saw this as an intellectual priority, and she found the center in that moment, again, in the South. I think when we think about North versus South, we often exclude what's going on in this part of the country. And Walker was very much a person who wanted to show that much of the work that you see happening has been going on, sometimes quietly, sometimes very loudly, given the, the history of the violence, et cetera, in the South. But Walker was still trying to say that education is central, but education is for all people. And the center became a place where all people were welcome. But she would also jumpstart these projects and programs right there, right here in the South. So Walker was, was in the center of a lot, so many conversations without sometimes physically being there, but they might have started right here in Mississippi. So she was a jump starter in that way. But she also pushed things through that other people were unable to do. And so that often made her resistant, insistent, pushing harder because she believed in what she believed in and she knew that she was right. So when you're that insisted about something and you want it to be done, you want it to be done right, and you won't take no for an answer, you might get the label an angry black woman. But in fact, she was a pioneer and she was putting things forward and she wasn't afraid to do it when nobody else was speaking out. Earlier, you brought up wanting to, through your work on this biography, um, center conversations today um, around the figure that is Margaret Walker. We've seen, especially in the last four to five years, a lot of heated discussion uh, about the role of the black experience in America and how much that should be studied, understood, and elevated. Where does Margaret Walker fit in, in that conversation? Well, the center that bears her name was started in 1969, and she saw the need to collect knowledge and have it in a place where everybody could access it. So today we call that sort of a birthing moment for black studies. For Walker, it was preserving history, remembering it, preserving it, getting an accurate account of it, and making sure that it's centered in our classrooms. And so for her, it was, yes, black studies on the one hand, but was part of the human experience. It made the human experience full and complete. And so studying the black experience, which had been overlooked or ignored or consciously repressed, had to be addressed in order for that full humanity to be understood. That conversation remains an important one. I think it's being you know, misrepresented on a lot of levels. And so because it's in battle today, 
doesn't mean that it's less important. In fact, the battle is to make sure that people are not confused about being a part of a larger culture, a larger world, and every experience matters. And Walker was simply one who said, it has to be done, and I'm going to do my part to make it happen. So I think that seeing her as a whole person, not a superwoman, that's not the, in, in, the, the image I want to leave people with. I want people to see her as a full, a complicated person, but a person whose commitment to her people, as the poem says, for my people, it was thoroughgoing, and that we are not fully aware of all the particulars of that, and that much of that has had a lasting impact on our society and our culture. So just getting to know Margaret Walker as she was. Mary Emma Graham, University Distinguished Professor in the Department of English at the University of Kansas and author of The House Where My Soul Lives, The Life of Margaret Walker. Again, thank you so much for taking some time to, to share your work and share more about uh, the life of an extraordinary woman. Thank you for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.